Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 17, verses 9 through 18, the second half of chapter 17. This section is about the sea beast, which was ridden by the whore of Babylon, the scarlet sea beast. Our context is this. In the first eight verses of chapter 17, we saw a description of the whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon, as I went to great pains to show, although this is somewhat controversial, the whore of Babylon is apostate Israel, not the Roman Empire. On the other hand, the sea beast upon which the whore rode, the scarlet sea beast, with the ten heads and the seven horns, that is the Roman Empire. So we're going to focus mainly on the Roman Empire in this last part of Revelation 17. And again, these two beasts represent two of the one of the major themes of Revelation, which is that they are two geopolitical entities persecuting the Christian church, the early Christian church, namely apostate Israel, that's the whore of Babylon, and the Roman Empire, the scarlet sea beast. So we start now in Revelation 17, verses 9 and 10. Here's the mind which has wisdom. This is still one of the angel that had one of the seven bold judgments, which have now have already been poured out, and the angel now is talking to John. Here's the mind which is wisdom. In other words, here's the smart. Here's who's smart will understand this. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, first of all, let's look at the seven heads of this beast that came out of the sea. The seven heads shows that the scarlet beast upon which the whore rides is Rome. Because we read in Revelation 13, 1, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. All right, there's the, there's the sea and the ten horns and the seven heads. And so in Revelation 17, verse 9, we have the seven heads. So now we have the whore's beast tied with the sea beast of Revelation 13. Now I said the sea beast was scarlet. We read that in Revelation 17, 3. John explicitly says that the this, this beast is scarlet. The seven heads ties this scarlet beast with the sea beast in Revelation 13.1. Now we know that the sea beast is the Roman Empire because of the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now the seven mountains obviously identifies the scarlet sea beast as the Roman Empire. Here's what Wikipedia says about the seven hills of Rome. The seven hills of Rome east of the Tiber form the heart of Rome. The seven hills of early Rome were Cermelus, Cispius, Fagutul, Appius, Palatium, Sacusa, and Velia. Well, I've never even heard of one of, except one of those. They figure prominently in the Roman mythology, religion, and politics. However, the other six, the Palatine, tradition says that Rome was founded on the Palatine Hill. The other six are now well known. The Aventine, the Capitoline, the Quirinal, the Viminal, the Esquiline, and the Celian Hills. Forgive the pronunciation. Sometimes you use the hard C like Latin. Sometimes it's anglicized, and I never know how to pronounce these things. But... Those are the famous seven hills of Rome. Now, there is a, another significance to the seven hills of Rome. First of all, let me point out in verse 9, John specifically said the seven heads are seven mountains or seven hills. So there's your first identification. And then there's a second identification that John gives us in verse 10, Revelation 17. They are, the seven heads are seven kings. Now, this further helps us identify the scarlet sea beast as the roman empire because of this double significance of the seven heads because john says that of these seven kings five have fallen that refers to the fi first five emperors of the roman empire 
Number one, Julius Caesar. Emperor number two, Augustus Caesar. Emperor number three, Tiberius. Emperor number four, Caligula. Emperor number five, Claudius. And one is, John says in our verse in Revelation 17, one is, one king is. That's Nero, because he was ruling as John was writing Revelation, so John says he is. And then there's one is not yet to come. After Nero's suicide, it committed suicide in 68 AD. The next emperor was a, a general named Galba. He had not yet come from the point of view of the time of John's writing. He was the first of the four emperors in the year of four emperors, 69 AD, when the Roman Empire collapsed into chaos under the Civil War. And John says in Revelation 17:10, he, that's that next king who has not yet come yet, Galba, he must remain a little while. He only lasted for seven months. You put all that together, we're talking about the scarlet sea beast upon which the whore of Babylon rides, is the Roman Empire. This is not very controversial. The only controversial thing is the whore of Babylon. Some say that she's the Roman Empire, too. And I've said before that it doesn't make any sense to me to say that the Roman Empire is riding on the Roman Empire. It makes much more sense to say that the nation of Israel, the apostate nation of Israel, is riding on the empire because they were so incestuously and sexually immorally and spiritually immorally hooked together in their perfidious opposition to the Christian church. We go down to verse 11, Revelation 17, and the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Now this verse used to cause me a lot of trouble. Seems a little obscure, but let me interpret it. And the beast which was, that was the Roman Empire, which was powerful under the first six emperors. First five plus Nero was the sixth and is not. That's when Nero died and the Roman Empire almost died. Tacitus thought, the Roman historian Tacitus thought the Roman Empire was going to die. In fact, a lot of people thought it was because it was in total chaos. And in 68, their famous pagan temple on the Capitoline Hill, the Temple of Jupiter, burnt down. Everything was going bad. So that was the empire is not. It's disintegrated. Now, this beast is also an eighth. Now, the eighth beast, that's where the trouble comes here. Now, let me give you the interpretation given by David Chilton. I think it's a pretty good one. The end of Galba, that's the seventh emperor. Nero's the sixth. Then the emperor was not. That's when Galba went down. Otho took over. But the Roman Empire itself is an eighth beast because the Christians might have thought that the persecution from the Roman Empire was over when the Roman Empire looked like it was dying. But on the contrary, there's another king coming, and that is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is identified with its kings. And in fact, Chilton, David Chilton says that the eighth king is a symbol for the rest of the Caesars of the Roman Empire, starting with Gotho. Otho, excuse me, who was number eight. Galba was number seven. So these kings live on, but they are slated for eventual destruction, as we see, because at the end of Revelation 17:11, John says, he, the eighth beast, goes to destruction. He's one of the seven, which means he's identified with the seven heads. Because the seven heads of the Roman Empire, the seven emperors, and he's the Roman Empire, the eighth. And he goes to destruction because the Roman Empire eventually went to destruction. That's the good news. So the eighth beast is going to survive the chaotic year of the four emperors, but he's eventually going to be destroyed. The fact that the eighth beast, the Roman Empire, is considered one of the seven. The rest of the Roman empires have the same beastly nature as the first seven. Now, this is not an easy symbol, but that's the way Chil I think Chilton does it the best that I've seen. It makes sense to me. We go to Revelation 17:12, And the ten horns which you saw, that's the ten horns on the scarlet sea beast, 
that John is seeing in this wilderness in the vision. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, as Chilton says, ten, as we know, is a symbol of manyness, numerical fullness. So there is a totality of allied or subject kings who aided Rome in the persecution of Christianity. And as a matter of fact, there were literally ten provinces of Rome that made up the Roman Empire. So right now we're going to look at the Roman Empire from the part of its from the point of view, from the aspect of its constituent parts. Here are the ten provinces of Rome. Italy, number one. Achaia, number two. Asia, three. Syria, four. Egypt, five. Africa, six. Spain, seven. Gaul, eight. Britain, nine. And Germany, ten. Many of those provinces still give us modern names that we use today. Now, these ten kings have not yet received a kingdom. How can a king not receive a kingdom? The answer is they don't have the full authority like the Roman Empire. Now, this is my idea, not Chilton's. But they've not yet received a kingdom because they are merely a subordinate political jurisdiction under the Roman Empire. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So they are subject to and allied with the Roman Empire because they have authority as kings, but only for a short time. And that short time is referring to the fact that they're going to persecute the the Christian church for a little while. One hour is a little while. So that means that one hour means the persecution from the Roman Empire will not last forever. I think this is to encourage the Christians reading Revelation, knowing that those kings are not going to be around persecuting the church forever. We move now to Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14. These have one purpose, the angel continues telling John. These have one purpose, those these ten kings, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb. These ten kings will wage war against the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. The Lamb will overcome them. That's a key word in the book of Revelation. It shows up over and over again. Jesus wins. How backwards things are in the spiritual world. A lamb overcomes a beast. In all those ten provinces, Jesus wins. The gospel of Christ spread over all the Roman Empire until the Roman Empire became the Christian Roman Empire. That Christianity conquered the Roman Empire is an elemental fact of world history. If you've read any world history at all, you'll know how that is. Now, again, that's not necessarily saying that the Christianity was the purest kind because it was merged with paganism and political. There was a mixture of church and state. There was a lot to be desired by that kind of Christianity. But the point is, is the Roman Empire lost and Jesus won. The Lamb will overcome these ten kings of the Roman Empire because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Revelation is a book of dominion and victory, folks. It's not a book of hunkering down as the... Cobra helicopters come attack, and as the nuclear bombs go off, and as the ten nation revived Roman Empire persecutes the church and gives power to the Antichrist, and the 200 million man army comes in and wipes everything clean. No, 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 no. Revelation is about overcoming. Let's move to Revelation 17:15. And he, the same angel talking to John, and he said to me, John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now, waters is a common symbol for the pagan world, especially when you see sea or waters. Let's look at some. In Isaiah 17, 12 through 13, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of nations. They make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. 
The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. And they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So in those two verses in Isaiah 17, we have seas. I'm just reading it off now. Seas, nations, waters, nations, waters. Easy symbol. Isaiah 57, verse 20 through 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, the wicked Gentile pagan nations, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith peace, says my God to the wicked. All right, so the waters which you saw are the Gentile nations, and that is further confirmed by the end of verse 15, Revelation 17. The waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's a standard designation of the Gentile nations. So that once again identifies the sea beast as the Roman Empire, which is the the political entity which contains all the Gentile nations. Now the harlot is sitting on these waters. The harlot is sitting on the sea beast. The harlot is sitting on the Gentile nations. The harlot is sitting on the Roman Empire. You remember that the original Babylon was seated on a network of canals which sprang from the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of Babylon. So this is a perfect symbol. The old Babylon has become the new Babylon. The whore of Babylon that sits on all these Gentile nations is the new Babylon is apostate Israel. Now, let's talk about this idea of the whore of Babylon, apostate Israel, sitting on the back of the Roman Empire. Now, there's influence going both ways. There's a close alliance between the Jews and the Romans. First, let's talk about the Jews. David Chilton points this out. He says the Jews had great and pervasive influence everywhere in the Roman Empire, at least up until AD 70 when the Romans turned on them. And here's some evidence for that. There were synagogues in every city in the Roman Empire. The famous church historian Harnack said that 7% of the Roman Empire were Jews at the time of Christ. During the intertestamentary period, there were huge Jewish missionary operations all through the Roman Empire. One reason for that is that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, opened up the Jewish religion to the West because people could read those Jewish Scriptures. Those uh, Greek, well, those Hebrew Scriptures which were translated into Greek because most people spoke Greek by this time in the Roman Empire. The Jews had colonized all over the Roman Empire, and we know that because of the first Pentecost we read about in Acts 2.5, the, the, I should say the, the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2.5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. If you recall reading that passage from Pontus, from Cappadocia, from all over the place. Luke gives us a list of all these nations. And those were Jews living out there spread in the diaspora all over the Roman Empire. So the Jews had great influence in the Roman Empire. And so that makes sense to say the Jews are sitting on the back of the Romans. The whore sitting on the back of the scarlet beast. The influence goes the other way, too, because the Romans, by undergirding the Jews, gave great power to the Jews. In fact, they were the ones, the Romans, were the ones that carried out the Jewish desire to execute Jesus. So the power and the influence was running both ways. In my opinion, this is the best symbolism in the whole book of Revelation. Revelation 17:16. we move on. And the ten horns which you saw... That's the ten horns on the scarlet beast upon which the whore rode. The ten horns which you saw, and the beast, that's the scarlet sea beast, the Roman Empire, the ten horns of the constituent nations of the Roman Empire. These will hate the harlot, hate the whore, hate the Jewish apostate nation, 
and will make her desolate and naked. That's when the Romans turned on that whore that was on her back. They got tired of that whore sitting up there, and that scarlet beast turned around and made her desolate and naked, ripped her clothes off, ate her flesh, and burned her up with fire. Great symbolism here. Now, it doesn't say the sea beast itself ate up the harlot. It's the ten horns, which, of course, were on the head of the sea beast and represented the sea beast. So it's really the constituent nations of the Roman Empire that ate up Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem, and, and burned her up. Now, Chilton digs up some historical facts that are kind of interesting. He mentions what Tacitus says. Tacitus said that Arab auxiliaries of Titus, that's the Roman general who burned up Jerusalem in AD 70, Titus's Arab auxiliaries were filled with animosity toward the Jews. And Josephus, in Book 2, Section 18, mentions that there were wholesale massacres of Jews in the Middle East just before the Jewish War. And this is in Roman provinces under control of those ten kings, especially Syria. For example, the whole Jewish population of Caesarea were massacred in one day. I assume that's in the province of Syria. Scythopolis, that's also probably in the province of Syria. There were upwards of 13,000 Jews who were butchered. I've been there. It was a Roman city. In fact, there's a lot of Roman ruins there in Scythopolis. The atrocities against Jews were also in Ascalon, which is in where the Philistines were. It was a Philistine city. And Ptolemaeus and Tyre Ptolemaeus is the Greek name they gave to Acre, which is right north of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. And Tyre, of course, is a little bit further up the coast. The Jews were massacred there. In Alexandria and Egypt, there was the worst massacre of all. Josephus says that 50,000 corpses lay in ghastly heaps on the streets. So yeah, the ten kings ate up the harlot, ate up apostate Judaism. So just like the Romans and Jews were once at peace, the sea beast and the whore were at peace, one riding on the other, happy as they could be. And just like the Romans turned on the Jews in 66 at the beginning of the Jewish war, so the sea beast turns on the whore of Babylon. Rome turns on his apostate Israel. Now, the ten kings of the sea beast of the Roman Empire made the whore desolate. Desolate, that's a good word. It reminds what Jesus said was going to happen when he gave his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 15. Jesus is telling his three disciples there on the Mount of Olives, so when you see the abomination of desolation, or the abomination which causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, which is the holy land of Israel, the abomination of desolation being the Roman army, that Roman army is going to desolate or make desolate in the land of Israel. And that's what happened. Mark 13:14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those are the Christians that escaped to Pella in AD 66. Luke 21:20. 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize, recognize that its desolation has come near. And so the Roman Empire turns on the whore and makes her desolate, just like Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse. The Roman Empire will eat her flesh, just like another whore. Jezebel had her flesh eaten by dogs, if you remember that great story. She, what was she was thrown, I forgot how she fell out the window and she got, she killed when she landed and the dogs ate her up. And then the ten kings will burn the whore, just like a priest's daughter was burned with fire, Leviticus 29. One nine. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by promiscuity, she defiles her father, she must be burned to death. Burning is a terrible way to die. It was reserved for the worst offenses, and a priest's daughter is supposed to be holy, 
if she's promiscuous, if she has sexual immorality, commits sexual immorality, she's burned with fire. Well, guess what? The whore of Babylon, apostate Israel, had done that in spades, committed all kinds of spiritual sexual immorality, and so she's going to get burned up with fire. And, of course, we know in AD 70, Rome burnt down Israel with fire, burnt down Jerusalem, I should say, with fire, just like Jesus foretold. Now, here's a great parable that people hardly ever tie it to AD 70, but we should. Matthew 22, 2 through 7, this is the parable of the man who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. The king is God, the wedding banquet for his son, that's Jesus. He sent his servants, he the father, the king, God, sent his servants, that's his prophets, to summon those invited to the banquet, those were the Jews. The prophets came to the Jews and said, come on in. And also not only the prophets, but the apostles, the evangelists of the new new Israel. But they didn't want to come, these Jews, the servants, they didn't, excuse me, the, uh, the, the, the people, those invited to the banquet, the Jews were invited to come into the kingdom. They didn't want to come. They'd rather kill Jesus. Again, the king, he sent out other servants, other evangelists and prophets, and said, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. The kingdom's all for you, Jews. Come to the wedding banquet. Marry the son, if you will. You be the church, and I'll be the groom, and we can live happily ever after. But the Jews were not interested. Verse 5, they paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm, another to his business. These are the worldlings who are more interested in making money than spiritual things. Verse 6, Matthew 22, while the rest, these are the bad guys, seized his servants, seized the prophets, and later the apostles, mistreated them and killed them. The king, God, was enraged. He sent out his troops. That would be the Roman Empire, the troops that he's using for his purpose. He killed those murderers and burned down their city. Burned down their city. Jesus has already predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. So the harlot is burned up with fire. We move now to Revelation 17, 17. For God has put it in there. That's the ten kings of the Roman Empire, the constituent nations of the Roman Empire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. In other words, the Roman Empire was fed up with the Jews, wanted to wipe them out. And God was also fed up with the Jews, so he wanted to wipe them out. So God used the Romans so they could carry out their joint desire. So God has put it in the ten kings' hearts of the Roman Empire to execute his, God's purpose, by having a common purpose and by giving there, the ten kings, kingdom to the beast, to the Roman Empire, until the word, uh, words of God should be fulfilled. So these ten nations were welded together into the Roman Empire according to God's purpose in order to, to wipe out the apostate nation of Israel. Now, Notice the ten kings gave their kingdom to the beast, and that was a sin for the ten nations to give their power to Rome because it was an idolatrous empire. But God put it into their hearts. Now, this does not mean that God is the author of evil, but he always uses the desires of evil people to carry out his judgments. So nothing that evil that happens in this world is out of his control. In other words, God did not override the free will of those ten nations. They wanted to wipe out the Jews just like God did. I mean, so God used their free will in accordance with his will. We go now to Revelation 17:18, And the woman whom you saw, that's the whore, the whore of Babylon riding on the back of the scarlet sea beast. And the woman you saw is the great city. The great city, that's Babylon, the great, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, or maybe we could translate that as rulers of the land. 
Now, the great city, we're going to use that phrase to prove that this harlot, the whore of Babylon, is Jerusalem, because we look in Revelation 11:8, we read this, their dead bodies, that's the two witnesses, will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So the great city where their Lord was crucified, well, where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. So now we have the great city tied with Jerusalem in Revelation 11.8. Now let's go to Revelation 16.19. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. So there in Revelation 16.19, the great city is identified with Babylon the great. So if Revelation 8 says that the great city is Jerusalem, and Revelation 16.9 says the great city is Babylon the Great, then that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind that Jerusalem is, ba is the great city. It proves that Jerusalem is Babylon the Great. And Jerusalem is the great city, and Babylon the Great is the great city. All right, so we read here in Revelation 17.18, and the woman you saw is Jerusalem, the great city, the new Babylon, Babylon the Great. The great city, Jerusalem, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, notice the reigning is done now as a current phenomenon, a present tense. So this is, makes it sort of hard to say that John wrote the book after the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, we need to take an early date of the authorship of Revelation. That's a big controversy. I mentioned it in my first audio in the introduction to Revelation, but we're going to assume that John wrote this book in the mid-60s somewhere before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now let's look at this phrase, kings of the earth. The woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Oh, that sounds like Jerusalem is reigning over the constituent kings of the Roman Empire. Now how is that? That doesn't make sense. Well, let's see how David Chilton handles that. And I'm going to tell you up front, I don't agree with the way that he does it. I've got a better way in my humble opinion. But let's see what Chilton says. Well, first of all, as an introduction, Chilton says this. Quote, it is perhaps this verse more than any other which has confused expositors into supposing against all other evidence that the harlot is Rome. Now that's the truth. I've given you plenty of evidence that the great city is Jerusalem, not Rome. Lots of other evidence, but this one verse right here causes people to stumble and then it causes a split in Orthodox Preterist ranks and people like Jay Adams believe that the whore is Rome and not Jerusalem. So here's the problem stated. How can Jerusalem wield this kind of political power over all the kings of the earth? All right, two possible ways to solve the problem and save the identity of the whore with Jerusalem and not Rome. Two ways to handle it. Here's the first way. This is Chilton's answer. He says that Revelation is not about politics, but about a spiritual kingdom. Here's a quote from Chilton. Quote, Jerusalem did reign over the nations. She did possess a kingdom which was above all the kingdoms of the world. She had a covenantal priority over the kingdoms of the earth. Israel was a kingdom of priests, exercising a priestly ministry of guardianship, instruction, and intercession on behalf of the nations of the world. When Israel was faithful to God, offering up sacrifices for the nations, the world was at peace. When Israel broke the covenant, the world was in turmoil. The Gentile nations recognize this. Well, I choke at that, that Jerusalem had spiritual influence over the rest of the world. I really choke at that. But well, here's two scriptures that Chilton uses to show that the Gentile nations recognized Israel as a priest. The Gentile nations recognized Israel as priest from the one true God? I don't think so. But here are the verses Chilton uses to try to prove that. First Kings 10.24 
The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. So Solomon is kind of like a priest to the nations. Ezra 1, 1 and 2, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. So yeah, Cyrus wanted to build a temple. Does that mean he's recognizing the Jew? the Jewish religion as having some kind of a spiritual primacy over the empire of Persia? I don't think so. Cyrus gave all of the constituent nations of the Persian empire religious freedom to let them worship whoever they wanted to. He was just doing that for political reasons, to keep the peace, get Judah up and going again so he could collect taxes. I don't think he had any spiritual reason for doing that. In other words, I think Chilton is way off base here. I would never try to defend his position in a court of law because I know I would lose. So let me give you the solution that I think is much better. Translation problem. A translation solution. We have got here in verse 18 that the whore reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, let's translate kings of the earth as rulers of the land, which is easy to do, and I'll show you why in a minute. So now we have the whore of Babylon, Jerusalem, ruling over the rulers of the land. Well, now, who were the rulers of the land? At the time, they were Roman officials, such as Herod Antipas in Galilee and other places, Perea. And then there's Pontius Pilate, who was in Jerusalem. And you had some others, too. But they were Roman officials. But who was in charge of those Roman officials? Well, the Jews, the Jewish religion, the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the ones who really had power over those Roman officials. They could start a riot, get them deposed. So let me first of all give you some support that you can actually translate kings of the earth as rulers of the land. When we know earth and land is interchangeable because of gay, I've talked about that a million times, that's easy. But how about kings? Well, the Crosswalks lexicon defines basileus, the Greek word for kings, as this, a leader of the people, prince, commander, lord of the land, king. Well, the word is loose enough to refer to all kinds of political leaders, not necessarily kings. Say ruler. In fact, if we look at Acts 4, 26 and 27, we'll see this. The kings of the earth, Luke says, and I'm saying it should be rulers of the land. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus. Now, here, Luke is in verse, in verse 27, referring Herod and Pontius Pilate as one of the kings of the earth. But Herod, in fact, they are explicitly called kings in this translation. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. But they were only rulers of subdivisions of Israel. Herod, Galilee, Pontius Pilate, Jerusalem. So wouldn't it be better to call them rulers of the land? rather than kings of the earth? I think so. Now, there's a, a slight problem with this interpretation. Back up in verse 2 of Revelation, we might take kings of the earth to be kings of the whole Roman Empire, not rulers of the land. So let me read that, Revelation 17:2. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, the whore, and those who live on the earth or land became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, you, there you can take rulers of the earth because Israel polluted all of the rulers of the Roman Empire with its 
fake false religion, this antichrist religion they had. And so you could say the kings of the Roman Empire drank a committed sexual immorality, drank the wine of her sexual immorality. But you could also translate it this way. The kings, the rulers of the land committed sexual immorality with the whore. So that means the political leaders of the land, the Romans, like Herod Antipas and Pilate, they committed sexual immorality with the religious leaders because they joined up to kill Jesus. In Revelation 17:2, I think it's a 50-50 balance. It could go either way. But right here, I don't think Chilton can make it go either way. I don't think that it's talking about the, the, the whore having spiritual power over Rome. And that's what John means in Revelation 17, 8, when he says that the whore reigns over the kings of the earth. I think it makes more sense to say the whore reigns over the rulers of the land, the Roman political rulers of the land, and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, were basically ruling over them. I mean, remember, Pontius Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. But who, who won? Who won that battle? The whore Babylon won that battle. Apostate Israel won that battle. Ladies and gentlemen, I finished Revelation chapter 17. We finished talking about the whore of Babylon and the scarlet sea beast. Whore of Babylon being apostate Israel, the scarlet sea beast being the Roman Empire, and their close, almost incestuous, sexually immoral union as they join together to persecute the Church of Christ. We have finished with chapter 17, and next audio, I'm going to start on Revelation chapter 18 and do the first 13 verses, and I'm going to call that Fallen is Babylon the Great, part one, because we're going to have to do part two in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for Revelation 18, 1 through 13, Fallen is Babylon the Great, and I hope you enjoyed this audio. 